With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Why did the weekend not take any pay to do the Super Bowl halftime? And he put up $7 million of his own money to do the halftime. Find out why. Also, find out who the two luckiest people in all of NBA basketball history are. But this is all part of the much bigger story of the man who is living his dreams. He switched out of his career, quit his job, and is now doing the funnest job in the world. So let's hear it for the Huddle Up newsletter writer, Joe Pompliano. Yeah, so I do a lot of different things, but sometimes I do get legitimately worried that you could try too many things and then you're the master of none. So... <laughs> Like I'm pretty good at all the things you just mentioned, but I'm not like the best at any of those things. Whereas maybe if I had stuck to one thing, like maybe if I had just done computers since 1990, I would be the best or one or top. Or if I had just done comedy since I was a kid, I would be the best. But instead I'm, I'm in a lot of different subcultures. I like diversify my subcultures. Yeah, you know a little bit about everything, which, which isn't too bad either, but you seem to be doing all right for yourself regardless. Yeah, it's fun. And I, and, and again, I probably could have, it's never about money because life is, is short. And like you, for instance, you could start and we'll get to your intro in a second, but you, you could have start probably some kind of sports analysis company or so I've got Joe Pompliano on the podcast. He has an excellent newsletter huddle up and it's about the business of sports and you should definitely subscribe to his newsletter. I'm not even interested in sports one bit. But every single newsletter you put out, Joe, I learned something about business and sports, and these are all kind of celebrities too, so I learned something about celebrity culture. We're gonna talk specifically about one newsletter you wrote the other day, which is why The weekend did not take pay for the Super Bowl halftime. He spent seven million of his own money, and you analyze really well all the economics of prior Super Bowl halftimes. But what were you doing before you did this newsletter? Yeah, so so thanks for the intro. Um, and. As always, you know, I appreciate your support. You were one of the early readers, I think. Uh, really? Who, who kind of? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I started in July, so uh, maybe six or seven months ago now, and yeah. you were uh, you were within, I think, the first month or so. So I, I appreciate that you've always been. Uh, you know, I, I know you've responded a few times. We kind of go back and forth on a few things, which is which is great. I love that. The first newsletter I read from you was so fascinating. It was about these two guys who bought this really shitty basketball team in the early seventies. 
and it was not in the NBA. It was in some. It was like in the ABA, some other league. Yeah. Uh, is there an A? Was it a, the ABA? Yeah, ABA. Yeah. Yeah, and then the ABA and the NBA merged, and the NBA can only take so many teams, so they couldn't take. These guys had such a bad team, they couldn't take their team. Instead, they got some sort of percentage of NBA profits through the years. Yep. Or I forget the actual. And they're like 100 millionaires now because of this. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about uh, Ozzy and Daniel Silva, which, uh, yeah, it's exactly what you said. They, were, they owned an ABA team that they bought. The two leagues merged, the NBA and the ABA. Their team was not accepted into the new league. The other teams that weren't accepted, the four of them, took a payout of like a million dollars at the time, I think it was. Uh, and instead of taking the payout, they negotiated a smaller fee up front, but then a, uh, a part of the media contract in perpetuity. So, you know, as you can imagine, as the leagues have exploded, the media contracts have exploded. They, they made a lot of money. I think it was like $600 million or something like that. And what about the people who took a million instead of taking the percentage? Do they yeah, hate themselves I, I, now? I haven't followed up with what they're doing, but I'm sure that they are, um, you know, they're not happy. I know like a lot of people commented back on that and were saying, well, they could have just, you know, kept a team in the league and those teams are worth X amount now. You know, you see the Golden State Warriors, all these teams are worth $5 billion plus. But the interesting part was there was no choice, right? They didn't have, they made best of what they could do. They weren't accepted regardless. By the way, even if they had that choice, I think that's the wrong, it, it's wrong. It's very unilateral to think just about money. So yes, if you had worked hard every single day and and dealt with, you know, the player problems, union problems, negotiations, league issues for the past 40 years. Yes, you might have a billion dollar team instead of a, you know, only the best teams are as you, you ranked the, the only the, there's some franchises that are only like a billion or less, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So who knows? Like they had some like crappy team in Tennessee. Who knows if they would have been a billion dollar franchise. Instead, they got 600 million for free. Yeah. I, I wonder if there's some context where I wonder how you judge these things, if there's any formula or if it's just luck that you take the chances as opposed to taking the bailout. Because I'm also thinking like the guy who there's a guy, Stan Weston, he wanted his boys to play with dolls, but he didn't want them to get them Barbies. So he yep. figured, well, boys like guns. So he made G.I. Joe. And then I think it was Mattel who said, yeah, we'll give you seventy five thousand uh, dollars or a percentage of the profits. And he took the $75,000 and GI Joe's made over a billion dollars since then. And it, it, you always hear stories like that, but I'm sure there must be stories too of people who said, I want, I want to risk it all. And they got nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's uh, definitely like some survivorship bias going on in, in some of these stories, right? Like there's not always, not everyone wins when they either bet on themselves, right. Or like, you know, take equity in deals. Uh, but certainly the ones that uh, I, I try to service in sports are, are cool stories and unique and uh, show like the positive side of it. Every story of yours is unique. And again, I say this from the point of view, you know I'm saying the truth because I am not, I never yeah. read anything about sports except for your newsletter. And then I have one friend who's like super obsessed with sports. And so I always send her your newsletters and she, but, but that she also subscribes, but I send the ones that I think are interesting, but she's, yeah. don't worry, she's a, definitely a subscriber. But how did, you, how did you get into the newsletter thing? Your brother also does a really good newsletter on Bitcoin and finance, he's Anthony Pompliano. And then yeah. it's either your wife or your sister-in-law that does the profile, also a very good newsletter. You guys are a talented newsletter family. Yeah, yeah, we all have our own little uh, little niche that we're attacking on uh, on Substack. But um, yeah, I grew up so I'm a family of five boys, right? So there's I have four brothers. Uh, so we played 
I'm from North Carolina. We played basically every sport you could imagine, basketball, football, baseball growing up. Uh, so I was always around sports. I enjoyed sports a lot. I went to college and then I graduated and I worked at a sports agency for a short period of time in college, just do it for my love for sports, right? Like I thought that was something I wanted to make into a career. And I didn't know if I wanted to do it for a team, for an organization, the agent route, whatever it might be. But when I was working there, I had a great time, but then I got a job opportunity to work for, uh, I moved up to New York City and started working in finance. I've been at JP Morgan for the past few years. Uh, working in their fixed income division on the wealth management side. Okay, let me ask you about that yeah. because you love sports, played sports all throughout your childhood. You studied sports in college, and now you're doing you're, you're basically selling bonds for J.P. Morgan. But to your credit, you're also now doing what you love, which is sports and a newsletter about these really crazy, quirky this intersection between sports and business. And it's stories I don't read or see anywhere else. But was it a good decision to go to J.P. Morgan, or should you have? become like a big sports agent or done yeah. something like uh, DraftKings or something like that? Yeah. So I think uh, it's interesting because I think one of the things that people outside of the sports industry don't understand is like just really how tough it is to break into sports. For a young person coming out of college, especially if you want to be an agent, if you want to do these, uh, you know, these like what we'll call like high profile jobs later on in life. Uh, just like anything else, it's it's really, really difficult. So there's just not a lot of spots. They don't pay really well at first. Uh, and I saw JP Morgan as, you know, like a it's obviously a premier financial institution. It was a great opportunity to learn. Uh, it was in New York City, right? So that that was great. It paid well, all that kind of stuff. So I saw it as an opportunity to learn that side of the finance industry. Uh, but yeah, like I was there for two years. Um, and when the pandemic started, I had the opportunity to do what I think a lot of people do, which was kind of just take an inventory of my life, right? And see where I was not only, you know, personally, but professionally. And what I realized was I, I really missed the sports side of it, right? And one thing that I took from JP Morgan was I liked the business aspect of it also. Uh, so I thought to myself, like, you know, how can I merge these two different things together? So I thought, you know, I know a bunch about the sports side. I know a bunch about the business side. My kind of niche that I always cared about was putting these stories together, finding the unique stuff, right? You talked about the Super Bowl halftime show. I don't think there's a ton of people that probably went and researched all the details behind, you know, the payment structure of the Super Bowl halftime show. Right. I had no idea. Yeah. Like I, I went to, I can't stand watching the Super Bowl. I'm really not into sports, but I went because, you know, a bunch of friends were having a party and we just wanted to go. And not a single person at this party which was clearly a super spreader event now that I think about it. Nobody at this party even mentioned uh, this. And, and there are people who read about sports all day long and they didn't know. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's exactly it, right? It was just something I was already really doing, right? Just just from my own uh, you know, intuition and, and knowledge. Uh, so I thought, like, how can I do this on a bigger scale? So I started writing a newsletter. It's called Huddle Up. You mentioned it. Uh, it's just the business of money behind sports. It's a different topic every day. I pick it. And I just give a deeper analysis. And really what I try to think about is like, how can I merge the two, right? People like you who don't necessarily care for sports, but like the business side and want to be fascinated by some of the economics of it. And then the, you know, your typical sports fan that knows a lot about the game and everything, but may not know necessarily the back end uh, kind of finances of everything. Also, there's a third factor too, which is, again, I, I keep mentioning it, but it's always relevant. I'm not, people don't expect me to talk about sports. So for me to read your newsletter and then go to, uh, a get together of friends who are talking about sports. And I say, did you know the weekend did not get paid for that Super Bowl? They're like, really? Yeah. What, what happened? And then now I know all these details. It's, it's good for me to, uh, it gives me fuel for socialization. But I was just going to say, it, it's like a little water cooler talk too, right? Yeah. Because they're only like five minutes long. They're not like really strenuous reads. It's cool information, a lot of facts and stuff like that, that you can kind of talk to other people about. But I, I do have to give you a lot of credit for, um, 
taking this time. And I, I feel a lot of people did this, you know, 55 million people went on unemployment insurance during this pandemic. So people had time or they had an opportunity to, to think, well, what have I always loved? And is there any way to, to monetize it? And you mentioned earlier, it's very hard to break into sports, but what you did is what I, I have. I have a book coming out called skip the line. So I'm going to, um, what you did is what I call a skip the line technique. You took the intersection of two of your either passions or knowledge areas. Like, you know, a lot about finance and you know a lot about sports and you combine them and that's a way. And then you found Substack, which is a way to make a newsletter in just like five minutes time. And you skip the line. You all the people who are getting out of college thinking they want to do something in sports. You just, and, and they're all saying, oh man, it's so hard. I got to spend 10 years rising up through the ranks. You just skip completely over them. And, you know, a lot of these newsletter writers are making a living or eventually will make a living. Like, you know, I know you just started a few months ago, but like, what, how's your subscribers look right now? So it's actually funny because I, um, so I have about 27,000 subscribers right now. It's a Which free newsletter. Yeah, I forget, yeah, do you and, charge? No, it's free. So, um, I monetize it through advertisements. So if you'll see on the email and on my Twitter, I have an exclusive ad uh, with Athletic Brewing. It's a non-alcoholic beer company right now. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a full-fledged business. I was able to quit my job and I do this full-time now, which is amazing. That is unbelievable. And not only that, those subscribers, they're your subscribers for life and it's only going to grow. And you have now just saved your life. You're going to do this for the rest of your life if you want. And it's something you love. And it's monetizable in ways that it wasn't, you know, even a few years ago. And you could also potentially, you know, those subscribers, they're loyal to not just the concept of Huddle Up, but they're loyal to you. So you could potentially say, okay, I'm going to make a little bit more hardcore fantasy sports betting line uh, newsletter. And, you know, and there's a lot of those services out there. So I, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I'm just making it up. But you'll get some portion of your 27,000, which will eventually be a hundred thousand. You'll get some portion of them that will subscribe to a, a harder core service, or, or maybe you'll get people to get some other newsletter that you work on that even for free. So you get more ads. So you're going to have so many different directions. You're also going to have book potential, you know, sportsonomics, uh, where you could take your stories and flesh them out a little bit more and write an entire book about it. And, you know, there's examples of, you know, like David Epstein's book range, takes a lot of stuff about sports and combines it with his interest in science, you know, those sort of intersections and your intersection is sports and finance. There's not that many books out there on sports and finance. You're going to have many opportunities and this is for life. Now you just created an, an entire new life for yourself. So congratulations on that. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm very impressed, but yeah, that, I was going to say, thank you. And if, if I could add one thing, I think the funny part is that, well, there's two, I would say, right? Like, I, I, JP Morgan is obviously a demanding job. I think people understand that and it takes a lot of time and effort and, and all that kind of stuff. But I work more now, hours now than I did there, which is which is funny to me because, you know, as an entrepreneur and, and kind of doing it on your own, you don't realize it becomes your life, right? Like it's, there's no time schedule. You're kind of doing things all over the place. Um, but when you talk about skipping the line, right? Like a lot of the places that I would have envisioned myself at previously have now come and offered opportunities and all that kind of stuff, which is very interesting and unique because, um, you know, the concept of starting your own newsletter and growing an audience and doing all that kind of stuff, just so many more opportunities open up, like you mentioned. Yeah. Like you, I'm sure right now there are, there are just like with podcasts, when podcasts became, started becoming popular, people started kind of gathering up podcasts, making podcast networks. I'm sure the same thing could start happening with newsletter networks, or maybe 
other up and coming Substacks might want you to switch over uh, and are trying to, you know, will offer advances at some point. But there, there's all sorts of opportunities. Like I said, once you start other newsletters and start kind of branching, branching out, there's always two ways to grow. You could grow horizontally by making other newsletters, or you could go vertically by making more higher priced items, or you could just, you know, you can make merchandise, but that's not as, as interesting, but it's what I call the spoken wheel approach, the wheel of sports, sports and finance. And now you have various spokes. Like you could start a podcast. There's, there's all sorts. you can make a book. You could do talks at sports management companies. And once you start building up a bunch of different services and products, you're a company that could be sold potentially like the newsletter, the hustle, uh, slash trends just got sold to HubSpot. You know, they had a couple of products and that was enough for them to say, we're, Hey, we're a legit company with millions in revenue and they got bought. So great, great job. And now, uh, I was fascinated. I'm always fascinated by your stuff, but the Super Bowl's a hot topic and the economics of it are very interesting because what's happening with TV and sports in general is, is a, a much broader topic. But I was very interested that I thought if you're doing the Super Bowl halftime, not only, as you pointed out, is it, is it life-changing because 100 million people are viewing you, but I thought you get paid a lot of money and apparently you don't. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people thought, right? So honestly, I, I knew this previously. So I just thought it was kind of like a run-of-the-mill type of scenario. And I, I tweeted it out, uh, you know, like he spent $7 million. The, the unique part was he spent $7 million of his own money to make the production what he envisioned, right? So they get, uh, if you think about it, they get a budget, right? So the NFL gives them, along with their sponsor, Pepsi, they give the performing act about $13 million typically over the past couple of years uh, to kind of make the production what they want, right? So they obviously have input from other people, but they say, hey, here's $13 million. That covers the salaries of all the people working there. It covers kind of all the architecture of everything you want to put up, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the weekend said, I need about 20, right? For what I want to do, I need 20. So he put in $7 million of his own money, which was unique in itself. But then I said, you know, what's even more interesting, he didn't get paid for this. And I tweeted it out and a bunch of people just took it and ran with it. Like they couldn't believe it. So I was like, okay, so let's, you know, dig a little deeper here. So I really tried to break down some of the economics behind, uh, you know, not only why he did that, but why the NFL doesn't pay, why, why artists are okay with it and all that type of stuff. And, and really so, what you know, So the ahead. NFL never pays. Yeah. Like did so J-Lo I, get paid? Did J-Lo and Shakira get paid? No. No. So they used to, I think they used to pay like way back in the day to get people to do it initially. Uh, but it's become a more recent trend. You know, Jennifer Lopez, uh, Shakira, Katy Perry, Justin Timberlake, Maroon 5, none of these people got paid. What about like, let's say the slightly earlier generation when Paul McCartney did it or Michael Jackson? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I was I assume that there it started at some point with payments, and I don't know if they have it like a, you know, some people will and do it or not. But I think what I've heard at least is what it comes down to a lot of the time now is, um, you know, you have to be okay not accepting payment. And then you have to, what they do basically is they give it to someone now who's willing to not only put up a little bit of their own money to, but kind of make the show spectacular to some degree. Right. So if, uh, you know, the weekend comes in and he says, I want to do a $20 million performance, I'll put in $7 million of my own versus, you know, I'm making it up, but, uh, an equal act, we'll call it someone who's similar to him, uh, who doesn't want to put up any of their own money. Who's okay with just spending the 13. They're more likely to go with the weekend because the show will be bigger, better, and it'll get more press. So do you think that's how they selected the weekend? I mean, not that the weekend isn't worthy. He certainly is, but, uh, like how, how does the decision process go? Are they, do a bunch of people kind of apply in a weird way? Like their agents call and say, Hey, JLo's available for the Super Bowl, And, and they have to decide between all the agents who are calling up. 
Yeah. So I think that there's, there's obviously a lot of people who would want to do it, right? So whether it's their agents or whoever calling and saying, hey, we're available. But I think a lot of it also goes with, uh, you know, strategically doing it around events, right? So the weekend has a massive tour coming up. It's good exposure for him. It, you know, it's directly related to his, his tour financially. So it's like a good opportunity for him to go and do it. Uh, you know, someone's not going to do it if they don't have a tour for the next 24 months or so. But yeah, it limits the pool a little bit. And then the money spending is obviously another big thing. And then they have to be a popular artist. Like, I don't think people realized before, but The Weeknd's one of the top artists on Spotify consistently, right? So he, he's obviously up there. Well, well, you know, and this this kind of goes along with the calculation he must have made. I had heard many of those songs before. I had no idea it was The Weeknd who sang them, nor did anyone else in the room that I was with uh, knew that, oh, everybody was saying, oh, The Weeknd sings that one also. We just didn't know. So it was, so so the people on Twitter who were responding to you and saying, oh, he must've gotten paid. Again, it reminds me of uh, kind of this unilateral thinking about money where it's just money's the only important thing. Everything's a negotiation. So he he knew he's, he's not getting paid. He's putting a lot of work in. His time is worth money. He's putting a lot of work in and he's putting 7 million. He's thinking of it as an investment, not as payment. And so yep. this is when it starts to get into, he's doing the analysis you did to figure out how he benefits and take this risk. And I'm assuming by the time he was done with the analysis, he realized not only was this not a risk, this is a, a must have. Yeah. So the way I like to think about it is there's three main ways he benefits, right? So one would be like a social media following. So if we just look at past historical data performances, like we'll take last year, Jennifer Lopez and Shakira, they both gained uh, in the day following the Super Bowl, JLo gained 2.3 million followers on Instagram, I think. And Shakira was like six or 700,000. So that's, you know, it's it's tough to quantify from a financial perspective, but that's obviously important. It's big and it's it's worth something. And then there's the digital download component, which would be, you know, like Spotify or, or digital downloads on iTunes and stuff like that, which the artists don't necessarily get paid a lot of money for. Um, but it's important to have their songs played a lot, be topping the charts, all that kind of stuff. So the weekend yesterday, literally the morning after the performance, so called 12 hours post uh, Super Bowl, he already had eight out of the top 10 trending songs on Spotify. Yeah, you mentioned that in the newsletter. And, and what does that mean? So like how much does an artist get per song downloaded? It's it's really, really minuscule, not even a cent. So it's like um, it, per play on Spotify. So I, I don't know if this is necessarily accurate, but someone responded on my tweet and said, for every 10 million downloads he got on Spotify, he got like $110. And how many how many downloads do you think he got? Like, what, what do you think? What does the top ten in Spotify do per day? This will impact hundreds of millions of downloads for him, I'm sure. Wow! But, right, like the Spotify component isn't huge from a financial perspective. Like these guys all make their money on tour, guys and girls. Like they, a lot of their money just comes from uh, you know being able to sell on tour. But the Spotify, it's it's another piece, right? So the social is important because you're popular in culture. Uh, you have a following. People are are tuning into your audience. And then the, you know, digital is the same thing, right? So you're in people's ear, they know who you are, they like your songs, they know the words. And then think about the tour components where they actually capitalize financially. So um, directly related to the Super Bowl, uh, Jennifer Lopez and Shakira, they couldn't capitalize on it because of COVID-19. They couldn't go on tour after the Super Bowl. They had something planned and they couldn't, right? So they didn't benefit as much. And I'm sure, you know, that's a regret of theirs. The COVID hit right after and they just weren't able to do it. But if we go back two years uh, to Maroon 5 and Travis Scott, who performed at the one in 2019, they saw you know similar stuff on social media and similar stuff on Spotify, but they also had the benefit of the tour component. So Maroon 5, they went on tour right afterwards. They were typically getting about uh, 1.5 million per show revenue, and that went up to 1.7 per show. So they were making about $200,000 uh, know, per show. And if you do it on a 50, 60, 70 show tour, 
that's you know a massive amount. Uh, Travis Scott, on the other hand, he he doubled his, so he went from about 500k to over a million. So that was obviously massive for him too. He's had a bunch of other stuff that you know has helped that also. But yeah, the main benefit comes from tour, and that's really going to be the main thing for the weekend, right? So he has a 66 show tour coming up. And it's already been postponed once, but now it's scheduled for about 10 months from now at the start of 2022. And uh, it's really just going to be if he can go on tour or not, right? So if COVID's still here and it impacts it, that's going to that's gonna be huge. Um, but he makes over $100 million per tour, and it's going to be a, a, a huge financial benefit. I think I saw somewhere, I don't, I don't know the stat for sure, but I saw somewhere earlier today that like he announced tickets in San Diego for the tour yesterday, and they sold out within like minutes. Wow. Um, so yeah, he's obviously, he's on top of people's mind right now for sure. So it's easy for him to say, okay, 7 million of my own money. And maybe he even has backers who own a piece of his tour, who knows, but he makes a simple calculation that if I increase by $200,000 and I do 60 shows, that's 12 million. So my risk here is really minimal. My main risk is if there's a COVID problem like Jennifer Lopez had, but other than that, um, I'm good. And even, even in that risk, there's sort of a hedge in that I'll get hundreds of millions of more downloads of my song. So part of that 7 million will be made back at least. Yep. Social too. And the, and merchandise, you know, there's a, there's a million different revenue streams that I'm sure he has that he, he calculated into this, but the other way I like to think about it, right. It's just, it's, it's super, super simple. So people were astonished that brands were paying $5.5 million for a 30 second ad. But if you think about it in that context, he only paid 1.5 million more, right? So 7 million of his own money for like a 12 to 15 minute ad. And not only that, but you know, you're the main star of it, right? Everyone's talking about it pre, during, and post Super Bowl. The earned media attention from that is much greater than any of those ads got. And he really only paid $1.5 million more for, you know, a much longer what we'll call commercial. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. How do companies like Pepsi or, or let's say somebody had just one ad, how do they know how they're monetizing since the connection between like, it's not direct marketing, like internet ads are the connection between an ad 
this is a more general question about advertising on TV, but the question yeah. connection between an ad is and and results are a little harder to determine. Do you think five point five million is worth it for a Super Bowl ad? Yeah, I think it depends on kind of what what stage at you're in your company, right? So like a Pepsi, they're already a main sponsor of the show. They had advertisement runs about the thing. They've done it forever. I think like for a mind share perspective, it makes sense. Uh, you know, these companies in this grand scheme of their total budget, I don't think it's really probably that significant marketing wise. But yeah, smaller companies, it's certainly significant. It's definitely hard to kind of uh, see conversion rates. So I think those are the companies that you see try to do uh, you know, something that's viral or memorable or unique because they want people, they want all the media attention, you know, after the Super Bowl also, because that's obviously much more valuable. Um, but yeah, I, I think these companies, I'm sure, you know, I don't work in a, in a marketing department for one of them, but I'm sure that they, uh, they would tell you it's worth it. Um, otherwise the prices would, uh, wouldn't be going up so much. I think I saw it was like 1970, a, a 30 second spot went for, uh, $40,000. Oh so gosh. if you can, yeah. So, I mean, you can just imagine these companies are paying up year after year after year. It's just gotten, uh, you know, crazy. And how did you watch the Super Bowl? Did you watch it on broadcast TV, on YouTube? How did you watch it? I watched it on uh, regular CBS, yeah, broadcast, linear television. What's going to happen to broadcast TV now that like there's all these streaming services that are also, so, I, I always thought that the NFL only sold rights to one network. But now apparently, I guess you could watch it on YouTube and, and other places. Uh, CBS must not like that so much. Yeah, you can access it via a bunch of different platforms. Um, so like whether it's like Roku or Apple TV also. But yeah, I mean, CBS has like those those main rights to it. But yeah, linear television is still a huge component. Um, I know everyone streaming is like kind of like the newer, sexier thing. Uh, but I think the numbers this morning, linear television, it was uh, 90 million plus people watched. And it was like five or six AMA for uh, streaming services. Wow. five or six million. So it, it's still, it's still a huge component. And don't get me wrong. That number was down. It was the lowest on linear television since like 2007, I think, or 2006, something like that. But yeah, it was, uh, you know, it, it's still a massive audience. It's, it's huge. The numbers are declining while subs are going up. Right. So it'll, uh, kind of intersect at some point, but we're not there yet. I think we still have a long way to go before we hit a floor on, on cable subscriptions. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, linear is still a huge part of the equation, especially for the NFL. Yeah, and it's eight hours of programming, so they get ads that whole time. It must be, I mean, I don't know how much they paid and how much they make. You probably do. I, I don't know. How much did they pay for uh, NFL rights on CBS? I, I don't know the final figure. Um, I, I'm assuming that it's included in one of their packages that they get for, you know, the Sunday games, and it's it's kind of looped together. So it'd be tough to tell for, like, just the Super Bowl in general. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's obviously an astronomical amount. So with your newsletter, do you kind of batch a bunch of stories in advance? Like on, on the weekend, do you like write five stories or is it like every day you have to research and come up with a new story? Yeah. So I get this question a lot. It's like, you know, running a daily newsletter is, uh, I gained a whole new respect for like content creation <laughs> by doing this. Cause it's just, it's time consuming. It's not easy. It's tough to be creative all the time like that. Um, but yeah, I, I try to get maybe like one or two done early and then I have like a running list of topics that I can go off of. And then I try to merge that kind of with like longstanding evergreen stuff versus newsworthy stuff. That's kind of up to date and, and fresh. Um, but yeah, most of the time I, uh, I wake up and write and I do it, um, you know, that morning and I send it out by eight 30 or nine 30. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, early mornings, some late nights trying to get, you know, research together and stuff like that. But yeah, it's typically, uh, most of it's done probably the morning of. But you, but you love the research. I mean, the good thing about loving the thing you do is that it doesn't really feel like, oh my God, I got to stay up and do this. It's like, you love it. So it requires less, the, the whole idea of loving it is not that it feels good, is that it actually requires less energy to do a good job because you don't have to talk yourself into doing it. Yeah. So as opposed to a job that you didn't like. 
Yeah, I agree. I think like anything, there's it's probably hard. You know, people are drained of energy or tired in some things that they're doing. But with something like this that I enjoy doing regardless, you know, it doesn't obviously feel like work and it, it makes it much easier to just go and do. Well, what's your funnest stories that you've uh, uh, written about now? Um, it's tough to think about. I, I mean, you got you got to definitely write like a series of books now. Like yeah. you have so many fascinating stories. Well, p yeah, people laugh. They're like, so I'm sure you've seen them uh, on Twitter, but for people who don't follow me, I do, uh, I do threads, right? So I do, I, I was at one point I was doing five a week. So literally Monday through Friday, every single night, I still try to do like three or four a week. Um, and what they are, they're just like interesting sports stories, right? So they're, they're usually 10 to 12 tweets long. They're super simple, easy reads. And it gives you like a cool story or a cool fact or like the economics behind something. Um, so there's a bunch of them, right? Like the, the Ozzy and Daniel Sutton one was really good. That got like 40,000 favorites. Like people loved it. I think Dana White buying the UFC, you know, he made like $300 million on the UFC without investing a single dollar of his own, right? So that's- Oh, wait, tell, tell me about that one. I don't think I read that one. Yeah, so he- um, he moved from Boston to Las Vegas or whatever. And he basically was like, he was an agent really. I, I forget what they called it back in the day, but it, he was essentially an agent for some of these MMA guys. And he was negotiating a fight with the guy uh, who ran the UFC before. And he was like, you know, trying to get every dollar he could for his client at the time. And uh, so he's, you know, negotiating against some of the guys like, Dana, you don't understand. There's no money left. <laughs> he's like, this is it. So Dana calls up his two buddies, uh, the Petita brothers, who owned some casinos or, or whatever in Las Vegas at the time, they had they had some wealth. And he basically said, hey, I think we can buy this from them. So they, they made him an offer. I think they bought the UFC for like $3 million. Mm -hmm. And he jokes that all they really got was like, they got the name, the UFC, they got a website and like a random, like uh, the arena, like a, you know, a mat. They didn't, and, they didn't have contracts with their fighters? No, so they didn't literally like, it was, they were dying. He was like, they were, they joke now that the business was literally gonna go bankrupt the next day. So like the UFC was happy to get 3 million. They, you know, they basically acquired nothing. Um, but yeah, then they they just worked really hard at commercializing it, right? So like making the whole, because if you remember UFC's kind of, it's it's normal in culture now, but when it first came out, people seeing each other get beat up on TV and, you know, it was kind of like a little taboo at the time. Yeah. Um, but it's it's become much more normal. They sold it for a few billion dollars. Dana White got some equity for being the president. Um, and yeah, he made off of his equity stake alone, he made like $300 million and he didn't invest a single dollar himself. <laughs> yeah. Those are always great deals. Uh, yeah. what, what's some other amazing deals you've seen in your research? Like uh, you always see, what, what was, there was a couple of weeks ago, there was the, uh, I think it was the Mickey Mantle baseball card. What was, uh, I, I don't remember exactly what was in that story, but that I remember yeah, being fascinated. It was just, um, yeah, it was, it was the Mickey Mantle. I think it's 1954 and the, like the whole digital collectible space is just, you know, it's blown up from the pandemic, it, it, you know, whether people want to get, uh, you know, deep into the the macro perspective of you know inflation and people printing money and all that kind of stuff, I don't think it really matters. I think like people are just willing to pay more for things now than they were, right? And that's really what's determining the cost. Um, but yeah, the Mickey Mantle card they're selling for a few million dollars now. Same with Jordan's rookie. I think it sold for like seven hundred fifty thousand. And these cards were selling for fifty thousand dollars six eight months ago. So the, it, it's crazy. There's just been a huge pickup in price, uh, and people have really turned to collectible space now. And like. It sort of feels like collect the collectible space is a very risky space. Like I remember when comic books were collectible in like the late seventies, early eighties, and then Marvel and DC just like flooded the market with 10 different Spider-Man titles. There was the spectacular yep. Spider-Man, the amazing Spider-Man, the blah, 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 Spider-Man. And uh, there's always that danger in the collectibles. So, like, why aren't people worried about that? Why are there people willing to pay up? Because that's such a random market. There's no real value to, to these baseball cards other than what people think. 
Well, I was going to say, I think a lot of it has to do, it's just natural supply and demand for a lot of these, right? So you won't see the cards that have hundreds of thousands of them produced. They won't sell for that kind of price, right? It's all the ones similar to art, right? So if you think about it in that perspective, um, it's all the ones that only have, you know, I think that that Mickey Mantle card, there's like, there's like 10 total in existence that are graded, right? 10, which is like mint condition or whatever, 10, nine, et cetera. And then there's only a couple that are only tens, right? So just like the limited supply is obviously a key factor. Uh, and then like memorabilia, right? So like, if you think about, you know, Michael Jordan's last Jersey that he wore signed home Jersey or, or his shoes or whatever, right? It's one of one they're signed, et cetera. Uh, so like those things will always have a place in history and they'll always go for a certain amount of price just because of the supply issue that it has, the supply constraints. And as long as demand stays constant or increases, right? The price goes up, but yeah, I think there's just been more focus on it. And especially now as, um, there's fractional share companies like rally road or collectible who are, you know, Kind of giving more people access to this kind of stuff investing wise and then there's just more venture capital being invested in the space in general right so whether it's people buying the grading services like collector's universe that sold for like eight nine hundred million dollars right so these are massive sales um and there's just a lot of capital being pumped into the space so i think we'll continue to see it now it's just a matter of uh you know building up their ancillary services to make it you know a little more legitimate do you think during the pandemic people got more interested in the nostalgia of their childhood so they wanted like a mickey mantle baseball card because they had just time to think and explore. I think that's definitely part of it for sure. I think that like, you know, people on Twitter every day, they're like, hey, I found these cards. Like, how can I see how much they're worth? And in reality, most of them are worth nothing, right? They're just like some guy pulled a book out of his basement that he had as a kid. And it's like, you know, a few cards that are worthless. But it's just, it's what you said, right? It's the nostalgia of just people going back to uh, kind of their childhood and, you know, thinking back to to what they used to do and play with as a kid. And that definitely adds some value to it for sure. And I guess also now there's these people who are like super rich, like Jeff Bezos, he would pay 10 million for a card that he wanted. Like it does, it's like a blip for him. It doesn't matter. So yeah. that probably and, drives and, prices and up. And part of it too is just, they're seeing the data right now that these cards were selling for X. Now they're, you know, here at Y or whatever. But like, I, I think the, uh, you know, people always quote that it outperforms the S&P for the last like 20 or 30 years, right? Trading cards. So if you look at it in that perspective, I think it makes a little more sense. Um, but there's obviously people who are still skeptical of the market in general and and, and don't see the true value. Um, but I think as these services get built up and it becomes a little more legitimate and mainstream, I think it'll continue. So if someone's listening to this and saying, man, I would really love to do what I love doing. This sounds pretty cool to do a newsletter, but he's doing sports and he's an expert in sports and finance. I just love gardening or I love cooking or I love, uh, you know, cricket. Like, do you think anything can be monetized via a newsletter? Can gardening be monetized via a newsletter? Yeah, I think so for sure. I think, um, yeah, definitely. I, I wholeheartedly believe in the newsletter model. I think it's great. I think it's important to have like a top of funnel approach. So like, I'll call that my Twitter, right? So that's a place where I can build an audience in public and people can engage with me and interact. Uh, and then what I use that for is to really funnel people down to the newsletter and like an owned audience perspective, right? So I own the email addresses. I'm able to reach out to them proactively. It's something that I can take with me off platform, uh, et cetera, right? So I think that's important. But yeah, I think the important part is just finding something, one, that you're passionate about, like you mentioned, so it doesn't feel like it's, it's work or anything like that. But two, it's, um, you know, it's niche, right? So you don't want to I try to stay away from just talking general sports like, hey, man, that player did a great job because I don't think that provides much value, one. But two, there's a million people doing that, right? So by focusing on sports business specifically, uh, it gives me like a very narrow audience, but it's still massive, right? So like the people that care about sports and business, it's huge. And I think that like when you pick a smaller niche like that, it gives people, uh, you know, the opportunity to interact with you on a better level. And gardening is the same way, right? Like there's millions of people who care about gardening. 
Yeah, and, and people underestimate the power of the niche. Like there's 300 million people in the country. So, and yet we know 27,000 is a good enough subscribers to make a living. Um, and you quit a finance job on Wall Street with 27,000 subscribers. So if you do the niche, that's how you get the 27,000 subscribers. If you just say, I'm gonna do football, you might only have 2,000 subscribers because there's a lot more supply of newsletters about just football or about just sports. Exactly. And and when you think about it from a paid perspective, right, you only really need a couple thousand to really uh, make a living and support yourself. So if you really have a couple thousand true fans who love what you're doing and are committed and, and all that kind of stuff, um, I think it makes a lot of sense to to do the paid model. It's just, you know, it, it, you can go a bunch of different routes with monetization. Yeah. And uh, Kevin Kelly's article, a thousand true fans is, a, is definitely a must read for this. But now there's so many newsletters on Substack. I don't want to say you started in the very early days, but you started in somewhat inning one or inning two of when it started to become really easy to set up a four pay newsletter or, or any kind of newsletter, even though it was just last July, just like eight months ago. So do you think now it's getting too crowded the space to, to start? Like what, what would you do marketing wise if you were, if you were starting now? Yeah, it's, it's tough because there's definitely more, uh, you know, players, I think the sale of morning brew and, and now the hustle and stuff like had a lot to do with that. Um, I think a lot of people flocked to that once they saw that kind of stuff and saw how valuable a lot of these things were. So there's definitely more supply out there. I think it's just kind of differentiating yourself. Right. So I think niche certainly helps like that with that. What we just talked about is kind of providing value in a specific that a lot of people aren't doing. Um, I think community helps, right? So whether you can think about building different channels or audiences to communicate with your subscribers, but yeah, I, I, I think it's tough because I don't do, um, all my marketing stuff is organic, right? So it's all through Twitter. I just, uh, you know, not only do I do my threads where I say, Hey, follow me, but also subscribe to my newsletter. If you like this, that's where I get most of my subscribers. I tweet out every, you know, once or two, twice a week, Hey, go subscribe to this, but I don't run any paid ads. I occasionally do uh, newsletter link swaps with people. Uh, and that, that usually brings some value, but yeah, I, I mean the, you know, if, if you're thinking of a paid strategy, there's probably better people to ask on that than me. But I do think the, um, the idea of being, it, it's not just informational and it's not just, uh, uh, kind of self-helpish. Like you're not telling people, Hey, if you're considering doing a Super Bowl halftime, do it for free and put in your own money. You're not like giving advice like that. There's an entertainment component. It, it's so interesting and sports intersects a lot with celebrity culture that in every industry, there's probably a niche where you could find the right intersection that achieves the level of cocktail party conversation. So like yep. it's legitimate cocktail party conversation to read your newsletter. And then, and I'm always armed with the next dinner with my friends or family or whatever. Yeah. It's certainly like just arming people with conversation topics. Right. And I think one of the cool things that I found out is, and why the, the you know, the article on the halftime show did so well is that people love, you know, finding out details behind the scenes of stuff. Right. So especially if it's money, people love, you know, hearing what people got paid for certain things, whether they want to admit it or not. Right. They, they love hearing the details sure. behind this stuff. Uh, they love hearing about contracts, agreements, you know, how people view investments and all that kind of stuff. So even if it's not sports, there's a million industries you can do that on. Right. You mentioned it's celebrity culture music, art, and you can even go sports specific. Right. So I stayed kind of broad to us professional American sports, uh, whether that's football, baseball, basketball, et cetera. But I know there's people doing similar stuff to me for cricket, for rugby, for soccer. Um, so there's just a million different ways you can go with it. Well, again, congratulations. I think you've made such a great choice for your life. It sounds, I'm sure people listening to this are, are envious. You've been able to, to switch your interests and, and do what you love and, uh, and always great content. Everybody should subscribe to huddle up again. I subscribe to it. It's one of the few, I, I subscribe to your whole family's newsletters. Like you guys are all, and, and ladies are all 
great at what you do. When you guys hang out for dinner or whatever, are you just talking like newsletter stuff the whole time now? <laughs> so people joke, they're like, what, like, what do you guys talk about on like a Friday night if like all you guys are doing? Because we'll send out like threads on Friday nights and like, what are you guys doing? Like whatever. But you know, it, it's just like anyone else. We're trying to build a business, right? So I think it's something that we we do constantly. But yeah, we we have fun. We obviously uh, leverage each other for different tips and tricks and and ideas. Uh, to bounce off each other. But yeah, we, you know, this is what we do for work. So it certainly consumes a lot of what we do. Well, excellent. And thanks for the information about the weekend and the Super Bowl halftime. I did not know that stuff at all. And it was fascinating. And congratulations again. And thanks for coming on the podcast, Joe Pompliano. And you, if you just Google Huddle Up and Joe, you probably find you, right? Yeah. Readhuddleup.com is the easiest way to get to it. But Googling works just as well, probably. Yeah. Even without quotes, Joe Huddle Up. You're the second choice. <laughs> there we go. That's good. Yeah, very good. So, thank. Yeah, so yeah. The first choice is somebody hired someone named Joe Huddle. So that <laughs> that that beats you. And then you're next. Huddle up on Substack. Well, thanks again, Joe. And uh, hopefully, you can come on the podcast again. I'm always interested in these stories. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me, and thanks for supporting me. No problem. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.